Hello and welcome to Dive into Deep Tech, a podcast where we talk about novel emerging technologies and the potential they hold to create new markets and solve some of today's global challenges. I'm Ishna Gogia, Program Manager at Republic of Work, and we'll be covering all the bases from health tech and biotech to advanced computing and electronics in the podcast series. We are delighted to be joined by Peter Finnegan, Head of Ventures at Tyndall National Institute, based in Cork, Ireland. The bulk of Peter's career has been spent in enterprise development and promotion, as well as corporate service arenas. Prior to Tyndall, Peter was the director of Blackstone Launchpad at University College of Cork since its inception in 2016. Peter, welcome to this episode of Dive into Deep Tech. Tell us a bit about your current role at Tyndall and how is it to be delivering and driving entrepreneurial activities for research and innovation-based ideas from a proof-of-concept stage in the lab to scaling it to the market. Hi, Ashna. Uh, good to be on the podcast with you. So in Tyndall, which is Ireland's national ICT research institute, we're all about deep tech innovation. And I suppose, first of all, in terms of what is deep tech, um, uh, it's, it's a term that's become um, more familiar to people over recent years. Deep tech really is activity or R&D-based products which involves um, solving large and fundamental global problems. Um, in terms of the, the nature of them, the, it has a number of characteristics. Typically, deep tech ventures are what we would say are high product market risk, so a risk of actually not finding a fit and also high technology risk. There's typically a long lead in time to developing to deep tech projects. So they're often grounded in many years of research which take place in a lab uh, or in Tyndall's case, both in a lab and in fabs. Um, and a high level of technical expertise is required. They're also characterized by the fact that they need a lot of money. So they're often activities that take place where there has been a significant investment in capital infrastructure, but there's also a significant investment uh, of time. And that obviously costs a lot of money over a period of time. Often deep tech companies have to comply with very high technical standards and regulations, um, which obviously brings with it its own issues. And, you know, the development costs are typically front loaded in deep tech projects. Um, so which, which in a sense is a good thing because to a large degree, when a decision then is taken to spin out a venture, as would be the case in an institution like Tyndall, that means that a lot of de-risking has been done uh, in advance of actually making a decision to spin out the company. Another characteristic of deep tech innovation is that if you look at the deep tech companies that have been created globally, about 97% of them are addressing at least one of the UN sustainable development goals. You know, typically they involve very strong IP. And uh, as I say, there's uh, a strong level of expertise uh, within the team uh, to take those projects forward. And that time from getting from the lab to spinning out and then scaling the venture can vary from really anything from, you know, five, you know, minimum three years, but realistically probably closer to five up to, you know, we have examples in Tyndall of research, which has been done over 25 to 30 years, where the spin out has only emerged in the past two to three years. So that's what we're talking about. Converging technology such as AI, nanotechnology, synthetic biologies, and even quantum computing are bringing the next wave of innovation. So what kind of research is happening inside Tyndall, you know, from material sciences to photonics and even hardware and ICD? Yeah, so Tyndall is divided as three main researchers are the Photonics Center, the Micro and Nano Systems 
Center for uh, Micro and Nanosystems, and then also the Speciality Products and Services Center. Um, so as you mentioned, some of the key areas where we would have a reputation, I suppose, originally founded in 1981 as the National Microelectronics Research Center and rebranded as Tyndall National Institute. Microelectronics is obviously key to what we do, as is photonics, uh, the development of sensor technologies um, and uh, semiconductor technologies. And um, they're the core areas, I suppose, uh, the main core areas. We also host the International Energy Research Center. Most of the research that take place in Tyndall is what would be described as applied um, and industry contract research. Um, so we're actually working with, um, you know, a huge number of industry partners on, on projects which can be, you know, uh, the duration of which varies considerably uh, depending on the scale and scope of the project. And a lot of those would be either funded by the likes of Enterprise Ireland, um, Science Foundation Ireland projects also, but also then we will be working on European um, uh, Horizon Europe uh, consortium funding applications and, and, and projects as well. Um, so the activity, you know, typically, as I say, takes place, the researchers, so we have a very large research community, about 350 people, about 140 of those are PhD students, and those numbers are growing all the time. Our target is to grow that number of PhD students up to 200. Um, and in 20. Uh, 21 in May 2021, we launched Ireland's first quantum computer engineering centre in Tyndall. The range and breadth of activity that's taking place, um, the one thing that characterises it all, it's all deep tech um, and the level of expertise that's required. I mean, some leading global uh, researchers in their specific fields, um, Brian Corbett, for example, Professor Stefan Anderson Engels, uh, who came from the University of London in Sweden, and, and many others. And as we spoke about deep tech, deep tech is based around leveraging science and advanced engineering to solve many of our societal, industrial or even planetary challenges. And as much as that smart devices have become quite an essential part of our lives, much like TVs and other smart home appliances. Could you tell us a bit about some of the inventions that were developed inside Tyndall and we're actually using it in our day to day life from beyond the lab? Absolutely. So I suppose one of the things is that, um, as I said, they're, they're typically grounded in many years of research. So one of the areas which I'd like to talk about is the whole area of magnetics and silicon, which has been led by Professor Kiano Muhuna, who's the head of the Centre for Micro and Nanosystems within Tyndall. And essentially, that group have been working on technology over probably a 25 year period that essentially has been developed now that is doubling the, the battery life of laptop computers and smartphones. Um, and you know, this obviously could have a very significant impact also on energy consumption in data centers. And, you know, Tintel National Institute is a, is, a, has, is a world leader and has a global reputation in this space. And the technology has been licensed to two of the, the five largest consumer electronics companies in the world to date. And it has a significant impact on defining the supply chain for, for high volume manufacturing um, of this technology. And we've, we've licensed this technology also to a high volume manufacturing company. Um, other examples uh, emanate from the work that we do with small and medium sized enterprises and particularly through an initiative called CALAN, which stands for the Celtic Advanced Life Sciences Innovation Network. And that's uh, funded under an Ireland-Wales program, under an Interreg Ireland-Wales program. Um, and I was talking to one of the, the people involved in, in I suppose, managing those projects in, in Tyndall um, this morning um, my colleague Eamon Hall, and he was telling me about some of, the, some of the fascinating work that they've been doing. One of the projects they've been working on, which I'd like to talk to you about, is with the, the Irish Guide Dogs, uh, an organisation that I'm sure your listeners will be very familiar with. 
And what, what Eamon was telling me was that it typically takes about 50,000 euros to train a guide dog, which obviously is a significant cost for a charity. But one of the major problems is that over 60% of the guide dogs that are trained are actually not suitable for being a guide dog at the end of the process. And it's often quite late in the process before they actually realize that there's an issue. So what they're doing is they're using um, AI and machine learning to detect stress in, in the guide dog. Okay, And I suppose the benefit of that is that you can then decipher which are the highly stressed dogs and remove them from the process or else identify situations where the dog becomes stressed. And then it's up to the actual the guide dog owner or the person that's training the guide dog to navigate those types of situations. It doesn't mean that the dog isn't suitable, but maybe it just means there are certain stress situations that have to be avoided for that actual animal. So essentially, there's an example of bringing science to solve um, an everyday problem in society. Another example is a beehive monitoring initiative, which is taking place with the digital hub in Dublin. In fact, they were actually up in, Eamon was up in Dublin yesterday, um, looking at the deployment of this technology. And essentially, they're taking existing sensors and then combining them. Um, existing sensors, there are loads of sensors out there in terms of beehives for monitoring beehives. They're developed to uh, collate commercial data. What we've looked at doing with the digital hub in, in Tyndall is to deploy a sensor hub and follow-on projects then will involve artificial intelligence and machine learning. And essentially what can, that can give rise to is the potential to actually monitor the environmental health of an area. So for example, the ind indicators and the data that can be derived for what's happening within the beehive could be an indicator of what's happening in terms of environmental pollution in that area. Um, other examples are orthopedic devices. And when we talk about orthopedic devices, we're talking about braces or casts or splints. And that group are deploying sensors to measure heat, temperature, and also swelling on wound sites. And they developed a prototype and they're integrating that technology with existing center, sensors onto orth orthopedic devices. So the sensors are already developed, but the challenge is actually integrating them onto orthopedic devices. Um, another project which has been done in recent years through the Callum initiative is a posture monitoring device. And that technology has been licensed to an Irish company in the health and wellness space. And essentially, the work that was done in, in Tyndall enabled that those devices to be made smaller, to be made cheaper and easier to manufacture. And they also were able to enhance the functionality of the devices. Um, Another final example I might mention is that of a patient and equipment monitoring device that is that can be used in hospital settings and of which the HSE is now trialing. And essentially that's uh, for mobile asset tracking, but it's also for tracking um, developing wearable tech. So it's essentially in the form of a smart, uh, essentially a smartwatch that a patient could wear while they're in hospital. The last one is something that was developed during the pandemic, which was a device sensor technology that could be used to essentially track if people were staying two meters apart. And initially, this application was developed with building sites in mind. So particularly in terms of contact tracing, you could find out if someone contracted COVID-19, who they were interacting with in their immediate environments and those that were within a two, two meter radius. Um, and then obviously that enabled contact tracing. And that was developed two years ago during the first lockdown. 
I think, really quite futuristic, I'd say, in the sense. To hear about such technologies actually taking place in today's world and age, it's only possible with the academia and the entrepreneurial mindset and the fact that we can actually now leverage science to build on what's you know in store for tomorrow as well. And I think beyond this, Tyndall has had quite a few success stories as well. And some of the successful companies that have been created over the recent years include Quanta, Firecom, Sensel, and many more. Mm. And I think one of the most difficult challenges often is about bringing the research onto a commercial stage as the costs involved are quite high. Building a prototype can be quite complex as well. So in terms of let's talk about the ICT hardware or even nanomaterials and the sensor that we've been talking about, like in the examples that you just gave us, how far are they from the commercialization phase and what is it that these researchers need on the base level to take the proof of concept into something that's more commercial and that can be used by the wider you know, community? Yeah, I mean, we've alluded already on a number of occasions during the podcast to the fact that it takes a significant length of time. So what you're trying to do is move it up the TRL level. In other words, a lot of the research that might be taking place is um, a t TRL 2 or 3. So this is when I refer to TRL, it's technology readiness level. Um, and what you're trying to do is move it up to maybe 4 or 5. Um, that's really, and, and when technologies leave Tyndall, that's typically maybe in some instances uh, approaching 6, TRL 6. So the challenge that we have, I suppose, that researchers have is um, obviously researchers are, are very busy individuals. They have lots of, um, I suppose, things competing for their time. So they're obviously interested in publishing. They're typically engaged in multiple projects. Um, they're drafting funding applications because they're all always looking for where the next funding stream is coming from. And then they're obviously working with their industry partners. But I suppose we're obviously identifying those particularly early career researchers who are looking at an alternative career pathway and trying to, I suppose, show them and, and encourage them on an ongoing basis as to the potential that self-employment offers. Um, and I suppose also to change mindsets that you don't have to do it alone. We obviously have a support infrastructure within Tyndall and within University College Cork for supporting this type of activity. Um, whether that's in terms of protecting the IP and then obviously where decisions are made to actually spin out new ventures. It's about them understanding that we're also trying to support them in building a team around the technology. Any business that is going to grow and scale and that's going to raise investment has to build a team around it. It's not just one individual. For us, what's really important in that process is to ensure that that deep tech creative, if I can use that term, that deep tech technologist will actually play a role once the venture is spun out of Tyndall. So they see themselves as, you know, maybe jumping ship. and That could be in a part-time or full-time capacity. But it's really important that they stay with the venture. And I think research from others would show that that's critical if you're to give the, the startup the best chance of succeeding. Because from an investor perspective, if you think about all the know-how and the years of research that have gone on, gone into developing deep tech, they will want someone who is fully immersed and who knows the technology and understands the technology to be involved in the new company that is established. So I suppose we need to come up and we have come up with uh, flexible models uh, to support that type of activity. But we're constantly um, organizing, whether it's events. So we, I run a, a new Ventures Fireside Chat series in Tyndall. We have a, a UCC-wide idea generation challenge for the first time for dedicated for PhD candidates and researchers taking place on October 6th. 
Um, in early September, we have the inaugural launching Future Disruptive Technology Summit taking place in Cork, which for the first time ever will bring the island's innovation and commercialization ecosystem, that full community together in Cork for what promises to be a fantastic event. And that the stakeholders of which are researchers, research centers, spin-out founders, business partners, entrepreneurs, investors, state agencies, and those entrusted with supporting technology transfer and venture creation activity in our research performing organizations. Um, so there's a lot of work going on. There are obviously a lot of supports available as well in terms of financial supports. The main ones, I suppose, that we draw upon are from Enterprise Ireland in terms of feasibility study funding, and then much larger sums of funding which are available on through the commercialization fund. And they're typically projects that will last anywhere between 18 and 30 months and offer significant funding, both for technology development, but also developing the commercialization um, aspects of the company. And I suppose the other thing to finish with is to say that from our perspective, it's critical that our researchers and those that are driving the development of these pioneering technologies are actually engaged from the outset in terms of the customer discovery process. So in terms of building those relationships, understanding the needs and wants of their prospective customers and qualifying them adequately. That's critical because you can have great technology, but if it's not required or if it's not going to be used, um, you have a major problem. So it's about identifying those prospective customers or partners with which the technology can be trialed, they can become your customers in the long run. So that's a critical thing that we really feel and you know, I've seen internationally that that's really important that they're engaged. So as opposed to outsourcing that to someone else, they have to be involved in that process because there's huge learning that can be obtained. And as you mentioned earlier, the critical thing here is to do our best to ensure that we can translate this research into impact for which can benefit society and the economy as a whole. And I think that just goes back to Tyndall's role in actually bridging the gap to the market, because unlike digital technology companies where it's all about, you know, you have to spend about 10 weeks and quickly figuring out who your customer is, developing the customer persona, and, you know, you have the customer validation bit. I think in the deep tech industry, it's there is no playbook for it, that if you speak with 10 customers, that's it, that's where you get the validation. It's about closing bigger deals, even if they have one industrial customer that's willing to kind of license the technology or even distribute the IP or work around. I think that's where the essence of deep tech is, like how do we actually commercialize it and make it more impactful. And speaking of new ventures, Tyndall 2025 has extensively outlined the importance of new ventures and startups. And there are a lot of activities happening inside Tyndall to support startups like Spin-In and Spin-Outs. And in, you in earlier mentioned on as well, the ESA big companies. Could you tell us a bit about the activities that are taking place and how can somebody who's outside of Tyndall become a part of these activities? Yeah, so I suppose someone from outside Tyndall can interact with us. I mean, they can reach out to me directly or to some of my colleagues in our commercial center team. Um, one of the things we do encourage is what we call spin-in activities. So this is where a company maybe has a particular a research alignment with Tyndall, and they may be looking for to work and collaborate with Tyndall in the development of technology which or know-how, which could then be licensed to that individual company. So we have a number of examples of, of companies that have essentially established a presence in Ireland because of Tyndall's 
infrastructure and Tyndall's research capabilities. And they wouldn't be in Ireland only for those reasons. Um, so we're always looking if there are uh, founders, promoters, whether they be from Ireland or overseas, who have technology ideas, um, but maybe they don't have the wherewithal in terms of equipment and, and facilities, uh, and also the expertise may be required to develop out the technology fully. Uh, to, to link in with us in terms of our, our core areas of expertise and to start initiating those discussions because we have supported companies like that in the past and there are funding mechanisms I mentioned, albeit a little bit unusual, but it can be done through things like the Enterprise Ireland's Commercialization Fund. Um, in terms of our supports for ESIS that are offered by ESA Space Solutions Centre Ireland, the two main initiatives we offer are ESA Business Incubation Centre Ireland so the ESA Space Solutions Centre Ireland is a consortium led by Tyndall National Institute. Our other partners are Maynooth University, Technological University of the Shannon, MARI, which is a Science Foundation Ireland funded research centre for energy, climate and the marine, and finally University College Dublin. And the ESA BIC is an initiative um, which has been running now since 2016, where we support companies that have a connection with space. So that can either be where they're developing upstream applications or downstream applications. And it's a two-year program. Uh, it's probably the best deal in town in reality, um, offers 50,000 euros non-equity bearing funding, um, training opportunities, uh, lots of trade op trade opportunities, the potential to get on ESA's radar, a lot of funding available uh, for companies, um, uh, Irish companies from ESA, uh, where they have a strong, obviously a strong, demonstrated a strong connection with space. Uh, and want to build a long-term relationship with ESA. There's obviously built a lot of credibility. So our local partner is Enterprise Ireland. So an opportunity to build credibility uh, by association with both the ESA brand and Enterprise Ireland brands. The other thing is Enterprise Ireland are involved in the evaluation of those companies. So it targets companies that are incorporated less than five years. And from an Enterprise Ireland perspective, you know, we're getting projects on their radar at a very early stage and opening doors for companies so that they can actually be fast tracked down the high potential startup route. So they're appointed a development advisor if they're approved to become an ESABIC Ireland client and essentially become an Enterprise Ireland client company, which for a lot of companies can be can be a hurdle that can be take a while to, to overcome. Um, our second initiative is technology transfer funding mechanism, which is typically for more established companies. Um, and that is called SPARC, ESA SPARC funding. And that provides €40,000 in funding, which is then matched by uh, an in-kind contribution, either in terms of cash or time from the company. And uh, once again, there's examples there of companies developing upstream and downstream applications. But where, they've, where they're taking a piece of space technology or something that has originally been developed with space in mind, they're now looking to further develop that with a view to deploying that either in a, another upstream setting or in a downstream terrestrial environment. Uh, so they're the two main initiatives offered by ESA Space Solutions Centre Ireland. And we offer incubation space, obviously, at each uh, of the five consortium partners. So Tyndall, uh, in the case of Maynooth, it's Maynooth Works. In the case of Technological University of the Shannon, it's the Midlands Innovation and Research Centre in Athlone. Marai, which is based in Skiddy, and then in Nova UCD in University College Dublin. It's fair to say there's loads happening inside Tyndall and Tyndall has been delivering cutting edge tools and technologies. And one of them uh, is developing new light enabled technologies with IFIC. 
photonics revolves around, you know, generation and manipulation and use of light. And it is one of the key technologies, enabling technologies that underpins the internet. And also it's one of the driving forces for the med tech sector and the ICT sector as well. Tell us a bit about the IPIC and the event that recently took place. And what are some of the exciting EU-wide projects that are under development with IPIC? So in terms of IPIC, so that IPIC stands for the Irish Photonics Integration Centre, which is hosted in Tyndall, um, consists of about 200 researchers in, in total. Um, and it's led by uh, Professor Paul Townsend, who's head of the Photonics Centre in Tyndall. So, you know, the, the major event that you're talking about recently was their, their annual showcase event, which took place in, in UCC, where there's an opportunity for the researchers in IPIC to obviously to demonstrate uh, the, the technologies that they're working on and the research that they're undertaking. And that's where we invite industry partners to come in and where we showcase the, the work that's been done at IPIC and the opportunities to collaborate with IPIC. Our researchers would um, collaborate um, both with partners on the island of Ireland and also across Europe then, and would be leveraging funding mechanisms like Horizon Europe. Uh, but also, as this is an SFI-funded research centre, um, there are, you know, platform technologies that they're working on there. Um, so, you know, the technologies are, uh, as you say there, I mean, we, we've, uh, that centre has a strong group in the whole working in the area of biophotonics. Um, so there's, there's, there's a hell of a lot of things happening. I mean, biophotonics applications are essentially the, the study of optical processes and biological systems, whether they're naturally occurring uh, biological systems or whether they're bioengineered materials. Um, so the breadth and scope of the work that that group takes, uh, that takes place within that group is quite staggering. Uh, and we've managed to attract some world-class researchers um, that that group contains uh, some really world-class leading researchers reputable in that field. Uh, and that center continues, continues to grow and go, grow from strength to strength. Yeah, it's absolutely fair to say that the use of photonics is beyond industrial technologies, both on the manufacturing side and even, you know, as you mentioned, the environmental monitoring side as well. And uh, IPIC itself has, I think, over 150 researchers involved in the entire group from different centers across as well. That again, coming back to the commercialization and, you know, the key elements of being or founding a deep tech venture as well. You know, as the head of New Ventures, uh, what are some of the key core elements that a deep tech startup founder or a company should think about when they kickstart their journey from lab to marketplace? I suppose the critical thing, and this is you could apply this to any business, is you know if you think about who, you, what problem are you solving? So obviously, we have some cutting edge technologies, uh, world class technology developed in Tyndall, but qualifying that problem. Um, is best done by speaking to the market. So engaging with the market, uh, that customer discovery process, I think more time needs to be spent by, by researchers in that process. That's critical because the learning from that could be hugely beneficial. But it's also the earlier that starts, the earlier you can look at the development of relationships with your customers. Now, the challenge you have in deep tech is that you're often going to customers at a very early stage before you have any devices or any technology to show them. So you're almost trying to build rapport, whether that's meeting people at trade shows or conferences um, or identifying companies that you can reach out to and maybe use uh, the, the Tyndall network, if I could put it like that, to have friendly conversations, to get feedback on whether or not to understand the pain that these companies are going through, what 
products they're using or what solutions they're currently using, uh, how fit for purpose those solutions are, and really then to try and understand going forward, because it's not the problem you need to solve. No, you need to think, given the lead in time to developing deep tech solutions, how far out, whether it's three or five years, what is going to be required in three or five years time by these companies and what are they looking for? And then it's a case of trying to get those companies on site, maybe supporting some funding applications because you have to raise revenue, whether that's from public sources initially, um, so the likes of Enterprise Ireland or um, it could be Science Foundation Ireland projects or it could be Horizon Europe uh, or, or Europe other European funding mechanisms. And it's about trying to I suppose generate then sufficient uh, a sufficient runway. So generate the funding to give you a runway to develop the tech to get it to a stage where you can put it in the hands of a customer or a prospective customer and get feedback and advice on that. Um, I think that that's probably the critical thing: the technology development, the researchers, the scientists, the engineers. That's their forte. Um, but I think that customer development piece. And that will invariably involve maybe bringing someone in from the outside, a commercial champion who work with the tech guru, the tech expert um, in terms of bringing it to the marketplace because they may have an established presence. They may have an established network of contacts. So it's about leveraging their network. Once again, comes back to the idea as you need to be thinking in terms of building that team from the get go and, and assembling the right personnel. Collectively, you can work together and achieve your, your um, desired objectives. And do you think the journey of a deep tech entrepreneur is slightly different than journey of other sectors, if we were to kind of compare it with that in terms of the hurdles and challenges? Because I feel when we speak about customer discovery, it all boils down to, but I, I don't have a prototype to show it to them. I can mm. only sell my idea at this point. Mm. So how does that translate? I think if I was to characterize it, I'd probably say it's a bigger play. It's a longer play. So you've got to expect a longer end game. Um, to actually bring your product to market. So I suppose realizing that, and I think most people in the deep tech space, they would they would know that because it does take a long time to commercialize these technologies. So I suppose you've got to be in it for the long haul. You know, you've got to be obsessed about what you're doing um, and, and totally committed. Um, you've got to be always constantly thinking in terms of customers and, and how we engage with them. You know, how can we build relationships? How, how can we get in talking to these organizations? And can they provide iterative feedback? Um, what events do we need to be attending? So, for example, Photonics West is the largest photonics trade show in the world. It takes place in, in California and San Francisco. Um, normally, it, it happened in January this year, um, always in Q1 of the, of the calendar year. Um, so it's about attending those types of events where you can actually meet industry partners and, and really get a, a flavor for what state of the art and, and what people are looking for and to try and maximize those opportunities. Um, I think they're the probably the, the critical things that uh, to, to be aware of. Uh, obviously, to realize that, you know, you're going to need significant investment. So once you've moved beyond, if you make a decision that we're spinning out this technology and that's your ambition, then you're courting investors. You know, whether it's pre-seed, you know, and there are opportunities now, for example, uh, Silicon Catalyst, which would describe itself as the world's only dedicated semiconductor accelerator. Um, since 2020, they've operated now out of the UK, um, but they originally started in Silicon Valley. Um, there are other uh, accelerators, hardware accelerators like Hacks, which is offered by SOSV. 
um, actually have a call with uh, their their manager on Monday morning, Duncan Turner. So essentially, there there are lots of opportunities. Their equity, those accelerators, are obviously uh, they take equity. Um, in case of SOSV, they're investing in the companies also. So there's, um, but there are deep tech funds. I mean, you look at an Irish context, Atlantic Atlantic Bridge Ventures, uh, of which um, UCC is a partner in their uh, second university fund, um, is supporting deep tech innovation and activity across uh, across the island of Ireland. And you know, we're um, you know, there are obviously other deep tech funds in the UK as well, uh, and and further afield. And a lot of the companies. We'll need to go outside Ireland, you know, particularly if they're looking at Series A and, and Series B fundraisers. I think the, the key thing is that you need to know what's in store for you and you need to also talk to those who've been through the journey. So, you know, tapping into the expertise of people who've been at, who've, who've grown, scaled, and either they're still with the deep tech venture or they've exited maybe uh, through an acquisition, um, you know, or trade sales. So, um, it's tapping into that, that expertise and, and surrounding yourself with the right people and, and the right types of advisors uh, is really important. And something you need to be thinking about from the very outset. I think it's like the last point that you mentioned, having and tapping into the network of people who've been through that journey is quite important because they'd be able to guide you what they went through a couple of years ago. And just to add to that, I think Irish government, they themselves have the DTIF fund, which recently had the deadline, I think, in early July as well. And that kind of does support you quite a bit in terms of the funding and the kind of the size of the round that they bring in as well. But again, thank you so much, Peter, for sharing everything about Tyndall and all the updates happening inside Tyndall. Is there any news and updates and events that you'd like to share with our audience before we leave here today? Yeah, I suppose the main event, which might be of interest to, to your audience, um, is the upcoming launching Future Disruptive Technology Summit that I referred to earlier in the podcast. So this is taking place on September 7th and 8th in UCC's Western Gateway Building, bringing the entire island's innovation and commercialization community together. Uh, I mentioned who those stakeholders are, whether it's researchers, spin-out founders, investors, state agencies, uh, professional service firms. It's a fantastic opportunity. We believe, um, my co-founders, Neil Collins, Liam Sterling, and I believe this is the first time this has ever happened on the island. Um, it is being really well received um, across the island and further afield. We've assembled some stellar panels. Um, we're bringing people from the US, from Belgium, Portugal, UK, and obviously Ireland to, to participate in the summit. And it's all panel-based. On day one, we have five panels, spin-out, university, tech transfer, and investor. The final panel is a legacy panel. And then we have a night summit taking place in Cork in true Irish fashion to ensure that we network and uh, engage with one another in a convivial setting. And then the final day morning on Thursday, September 8th, we will have an investor keynote. We'll also have an investor panel. And then finally, we'll have pitches by researchers who are at an advanced stage in the commercialization journey or recent spin-out founders and uh Tickets can be purchased for the summit at lfdt.tech, T-E-C-H, lfdt.tech. So certainly if there are companies, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, anybody thinks that uh, this sounds is of interest to them, I certainly think they'll they'll have a fantastic opportunity to learn about the ecosystem, to, to network and engage with the players in the ecosystem, and, and also have an opportunity to contribute because the way we have it structured is that after each panel presentation, 
there'll be live Q&A interaction uh, with the audience. Um, so I think it's a, it's an event not to be missed and we're really looking forward to it and, and really excited about the, the prospect that it holds uh, on September 7th and 8th in Cork. I'm absolutely excited to be there in person and witness all these panel discussions in person as well. But thank you so much, Peter, for joining us today and sharing some wonderful insights in the ecosystem and developments that are taking place at Tyndall. We're excited to see more of these innovations taking shape in real life and witnessing the next surge of innovation powered by new technologies. Thanks again. Thanks, Ashna. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dive Into Deep Tech, powered by Grant Thornton Ireland and brought to you from Republic of Work Studio, Cork's leading co-working innovation hub. Follow us online for more information. Till then, stay tuned.